0: Hey, everybody. Jeremy here. So before we begin the episode, I want to take a few minutes to tell you about an opportunity to help support the podcast and make sure that there'll be a season three of Adventures in Jewish Studies. If you're listening to me right now, I assume you're a fan of the podcast, or maybe you're a new listener checking us out for the first time, in which case, welcome. Either way, I'm guessing that you're listening because you like learning about Jewish history and culture. And because you believe in our mission of making Jewish studies scholarship accessible to non-academics in a way that's fun and engaging and that you can listen to while you're walking the dog or making dinner or whatever it is you do when you listen to podcasts. But here's the thing. Creating these episodes takes a lot of time and planning and money. Our initial seed funding for the podcast is coming to an end, and while we have some funding for next year, we need your help to produce more than just a handful of episodes and to remain true to our very high production standards. If you enjoy the podcast and care about Jewish history and culture, and think that resources like the podcast are important for Jewish education, I hope you'll help us raise the funds we need to keep going. The best way to do that is on juicer.org. That's J-E-W-C-E-R dot It's a crowdfunding platform for Jewish projects where we've just launched a campaign. So go to juicer.org slash project slash AJS podcast. We'll put that link on the podcast webpage. Or you can just go to juicer.org and search for Adventures in Jewish Studies. So thanks in advance for your support. We really appreciate it. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Adventures in Jewish Studies. So now in normal times, in non-pandemic times, a lot of kids would be going to summer camp, and especially a lot of Jewish kids. But alas, this year, tragically, most camps, maybe all camps, are closed for the summer. I'm on the line with associate producer Jen Richler. We're still social distancing, so we're looking at each other through a screen. But Jen, your kids normally would go to to summer camp, right? That's
1: true. They would right now, as we as we record, they would be at a Jewish summer camp in Canada, actually the one I attended as a child, just a little mm-hmm. north of Montreal. And they would be happily whiling away the hours canoeing and making lanyards, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I guess I know what kids do at camp because I went there and just, you mm-hmm. know, they'd be having a great time. Yeah. And now they are sadly not doing that.
0: Ugh, so how are you how are you handling that?
1: Well, you know, I feel I do feel disappointed for them because mm-hmm. um, camp is fun, as we will discuss in this episode. Camp is, yeah. is a really special place and it's fun. And actually I find um, this summer my kids have been telling me more stories about previous summers of camp that uh, I hadn't heard before. And I think that is due to some nostalgia and longing. Yeah for what they're missing. And I I feel bad for them. I will be honest and also say I feel a little bad for myself and my husband that we (laughs) have been deprived, like many parents, of the uh, little respite um, and the kid-free time that camp affords to parents everywhere or uh,
0: lucky parents everywhere. I hear you. I mean, my kids are... They're 19 now, twins. Uh, But they used to go to... They went to camp. We sent them to Young Judea Camp up in Wisconsin. And boy, when they went away for those four weeks or what, however long it was, that was like paradise for us, for me and my wife. And also, and and for them too, right? I mean, summer camp, I went to camp too. I went to Camp Tavor in Three Rivers, Michigan, a Habonim drawer camp. And it was a pretty formative time in my life, right? In terms right. Of, of Jewishness and how I felt about being Jewish and just the friends I made there. I mean, this, those are some of my best friends still to this day, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, so it really is such a shame that camp is closed this summer. But what are you going to do? They get, they had to close. What right? are you
1: going to do? You just plod along and hope for yeah. the best next summer. Yeah,
0: Right. But but as you mentioned, that's really what this episode is all about. I mean, yes, summer camps are closed, but this episode about summer camp is pretty much the next best thing. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh, yes. it's It's camp in podcast form.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's almost the same. It's
1: really?
0: like being there. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> of course it of course it's not. Um, but that's why really why we wanted to do this episode, right? We knew camps would be closed. And so we wanted to take a look at Jewish Summer Camp. Like, what is the big deal? You know, what makes Jewish Summer Camp so special? And and, and part of the way that we explored that is by going back in history as we often do, looking at the origins of Jewish summer camp. How did it get started? Why did it get started? And how has it evolved over time? And why does Jewish summer camp remain as such a big deal today? Enough of us yakking about camp. Let's get to the episode. Imagine you're a kid growing up on the Lower East Side of New York City during the 1890s. You're the child of Eastern European immigrants who came to the United States in search of a better life. But for the time being, at least, you're poor. It's summertime, and the heat is so oppressive in your family's tiny tenement flat that you spend most of your time outside roaming the crowded streets. One day, you're visited by a young woman from the settlement movement progressive-era reformist social organization that works to help tenement dwellers with daycare, education, and health care. She explains to your mother that the stifling heat and unclean air and water and general squalor of the Lower East Side can be harmful to young people's physical and moral health. Why not have your child spend the summer in the countryside with other kids, breathing clean air and learning to become a real American? Plus, it's all paid for by the settlement movement so there's no cost. It sounds like a wonderful opportunity. It is a wonderful opportunity, especially for Jewish immigrant parents who want their kids to take advantage of everything that America, the golden Medina or golden country, has to offer. And so off you go to spend the summer in the great American outdoors.
2: American summer camping as a definable movement or sector comes out of the progressive era idea of the fresh air movement.
0: This is Sandy Fox, a Jim Joseph postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University who specializes in the history of Jewish summer camping.
2: The idea being take urban youth who live in these industrialized cities, which reformers believed were bad for them in terms of their health and their moral hygiene, take them and bring them to the countryside and give them an opportunity to live kind of an anti-modern fantasy.
0: The Fresh Era movement wasn't a Jewish movement, although many young urban Jews of the era participated in its summer camp programs. Some Jewish organizations, such as the Young Men's Hebrew Association, or YMHA, the Jewish counterpart to the YMCA, also sponsored summer camps. But the camps were not intended to foster Jewish identity. Their purpose was to mold immigrant youth into upstanding Americans.
2: It was appealing to go, let's say, to a settlement house camp because they would be free or very, very low cost, and and families would be encouraged to do so. At the same time, these camps, with their assimilationist impulses, did not make a lot of accommodations for Jewish campers. So kosher-style food, for instance, that would be probably a no-go.
0: During the early decades of the 20th century and into the 1920s, specifically Jewish camps that did strive to cultivate Jewish culture and identity began to emerge. There had been some private Jewish camps before then, but camps with a Jewish educational focus really took off in the 1920s.
2: You start to see in the 1920s camps sponsored by Yiddish organizations, the Volksschulen organizations like the Workmen's Circle and different sort of labor unions or fraternal organizations sponsoring camps for Yiddish-speaking youth or children who were born to Yiddish-speaking parents. So these kids in the beginning, in the progressive era, already spoke Yiddish, but they would come and they would better their Yiddish, or that would be the idea.
0: A few Zionist camps also began during the 1920s, and so did Jewish camps that weren't explicitly Zionist.
2: Jewish educational camps that are not affiliated directly with a Zionist or a Yiddishist movement like Camp Sedgwin, Camp Modin. And that's sort of the milieu of the Jewish educational camp in the interwar period.
0: One reason that more and more Jewish kids during this era went to Jewish summer camps was because mainstream camps were for middle-class Protestant boys. Many didn't allow Jews, Catholics, African-Americans, or any other non-Protestant kids. But Jews chose Jewish camps for other reasons, too.
2: There was a relief in the sort of social comfort of sending your kid to camp with fellow Jews, where, you know, maybe at home, the kids and the families both would feel an, a pressure to assimilate, to give up their, their minority language and aspects of their culture and religion. Camp offered a safe place for, for Jewish children to basically become immersed in some degree of a Jewish social lifestyle.
0: This is the G.I. Jive. Man alive. It starts with the bugler blow and reveille over your bed. The period from roughly 1942 to 1952 saw an explosion of Jewish summer camping. Many of the Jewish camps that we know today, such as Ramah, as well as Reform summer camps and Zionist camps, got started then. And it wasn't only Jewish camps, Christian summer camps grew as well.
2: And that's likely because of the same reasons, which is that you have this expanding American white middle class. You have a sort of boom period for American denominational religion, spurred in part by the move to the suburbs and the idea that your house of worship would be a sort of center or a, an anchor of community.
0: And so Jews active in the reform and conservative movement saw summer camp as an extension of the temple or synagogue and the Jewish community centered there. But other forces were at play too. After World War II, many of the barriers that kept Jews from participating fully in American life began to fall away. No longer barred from elite universities and from entering the most lucrative professions, Jews began to prosper and to move out of the urban ghettos and into the wealthy suburbs. But rising prosperity came with anxiety about a loss of Jewish identity. Many American Jewish parents worried that their suburban kids were too comfortable. Their middle class lives seemed completely disconnected from the poor inner city Jewish enclaves, not to mention the shtetls of Eastern Europe.
2: And who certainly would not understand, you know, in the Zionist mindset, the experience of Halutzim, pioneers in Palestine and later Israel and the difficulties they faced.
0: Jewish parents came to see Jewish summer camp as a way for their kids to have what they saw as an authentic, immersive Jewish experience. But there's no doubt that Jewish summer camps owe their growth after World War II to one thing above all— the destruction of European Jewish life and culture in the Holocaust. Suddenly, American Jewish leaders saw themselves as responsible for carrying Jewish culture into the future.
2: At that point, we have to remember Israel's future was very uncertain. And so American Jews really were conscious of their role in continuing Jewish culture as they understood it. And so camps came to take on that mission, and in very different ways depending on their ideologies.
0: For example, millions of Yiddish-speaking Jews had been killed in the death camps of the Holocaust. The directors and counselors at Yiddish camps felt that they had a duty to teach Yiddish to prevent the language from becoming extinct.
2: The entire fight to keep Yiddish alive in a camp, let's say like Camp Hemshech or Boiberik, was inflected by this tremendous feeling of tragedy and loss, at least from the staff members' perspective. But also a lot of the campers in the post-war period, at at Camp Hemshech at least, were the children of Holocaust survivors.
0: Zionist camps also responded to the Holocaust by positioning the newly formed state of Israel as a sort of beacon of hope during a dark time.
2: Zionist educators believed that Israel could be used effectively as a tool to engender Jewish pride in a time where Jewish pride might have been kind of hard to come by. A Zionist take home message was very, very common in most Jewish summer camps because it, it provided a happy ending to a generation that at least these older Jews believed needed that happy ending in order to feel positive about being Jewish. So that's very different at the Yiddish camps. There's no easy happy ending there.
0: Jewish summer camps weren't the only institutions that American Jews relied on to provide education and foster a sense of Jewish identity in their kids. There were also, of course, synagogues and Hebrew schools and Jewish day schools. But camp was seen as a cut above those other institutions because, as Fox says, it was fully immersive.
2: So what do I mean by immersive? I mean, obviously, you have a campsite. And so that environment plays a role in it. You can build an environment that, you know, all the names of the buildings are in Hebrew or in Yiddish, and you can lock the gate or or not take campers too much outside of camp for the period they're there. And I think the fact that Jews went to camp for longer periods, like four to eight weeks, adds to that, right? So Christian camping, there there are a few camps that are Christian and meet that long, but it's very, very it's a small number, I think, by the post-war period, as I understand. So that length of time is really crucial.
0: Jewish camp directors and educators crammed those four or eight weeks with as much Jewish content as possible.
2: Prayer in the morning to flag raising and the question of, are you going to raise the Israeli flag alongside the American to labor hour that sort of evoked the kibbutz mentality or the socialism of Yiddish speakers of, of yore and so forth and so on. So... You structure camp life from a daily, a weekly, and a monthly perspective to have an ideological vision all the way through.
0: Part of that ideological vision before World War II and in the early post-war years included language instruction in Yiddish or Hebrew. And we're not talking about simply using Hebrew or Yiddish words to describe various camp buildings and age groups. We're talking about full Yiddish and Hebrew immersion. In some camps, English was forbidden. But as early as the 1940s, it was pretty obvious that Yiddish immersion wasn't going to work.
2: By the 1940s, Labish later the director of Camp Boybrick, is horrified at what he's seeing in terms of the abilities of campers and even to some extent their their parents who fill out surveys for him noting that they don't want to receive his letters about camp, you know, the sort of camp newsletter in Yiddish. They want to receive it in English.
0: Bowing to reality, many Yiddish camps turn to more of a language infusion model.
2: The names of places around camp and the times and the schedule and the songs are in Yiddish, but very little emphasis is placed on learning Yiddish.
0: Some Zionist camps tried to immerse campers in Hebrew.
2: The main example here is Camp Masad. They create their own dictionary. They had a very strict founder and camp director, Shlomo Shosinger, who, I mean, as I understand from the archives and from oral histories, campers could be a little bit afraid of him.
0: Because, according to Fox, campers who were overheard speaking English could be punished or get yelled at. Camp Ramah also put heavy emphasis on Hebrew in its early years, during the 1940s and 50s. But like the Yiddishist camps, Masad Ramah, and other camps with a Hebrew language focus eventually evolved toward Hebrew infusion.
2: You can bring a cow to water, but you can't make it drink. You can bring Hebrew to the campers, but you can't make them speak a language that they don't want to speak. And you can't even make the counselors do it either if they want to, you know, sort of emotionally connect with one another and with their campers.
0: Jewish camps also began to compensate for a declining interest in Hebrew by focusing more on Israel, especially during the late 1960s when Israel was becoming more and more prominent in American Jewish life and culture.
2: In the case of, let's say, the conservative and reform camps, which didn't begin explicitly as Zionist... As Israel becomes a bigger and bigger part of American Jewish identity and cultural life, so too does it enter the summer camp and proves a very useful sort of tool for creating this sense of authenticity.
0: Now, anyone who's been to summer camp, Jewish or otherwise, knows that part of the attraction for campers is the sense of freedom that comes from being away from parents and school. Jewish camp directors of the 50s and 60s were well aware that forcing their beliefs on campers simply would not work. Instead, they adopted what anthropologist Randall Tillery would come to call structured mayhem.
2: Camp educators wanted camp life to be free to a certain degree, and that by structuring that freedom, allowing certain kinds of activities like raids, games that sort of gave campers the feeling of running free around camp like capture the flag camp dances that gave a very specific window and a controlled way for campers to express interest in the opposite sex or perhaps the same sex um, and sexuality that these were ways to deal with that fundamental tension of okay you have this majority at camp that are campers that are children and teenagers and how do you how do you give that that majority enough power that they feel free.
0: That was important because Jewish camp directors also knew that that sense of freedom was essential for achieving the overall mission of fostering a sense of what they saw as authentic Jewishness in their campers.
2: If you want camp to work, quote unquote, if you want campers to go home feeling or being more, quote unquote, authentically Jewish, they need to feel like they made that choice on their own, that that authenticity is their own. And so structuring camps to have a great degree of freedom was one way in which they did that.
0: Every time I close my eyes, I remember how time flies. When I'm with her, we try to make every moment My gone by so fast looking back it's all a blur. fast forward several decades and in some ways Jewish summer camp hasn't really changed much camp Ramah, reform movement camps and many of the zionist movement and other camps are still doing their thing every summer well more than half a century after their founding Jewish educators and camp directors still see camp as one of the best ways to provide Jewish kids with an immersive Jewish experience that makes being Jewish fun and cool. And campers are still drawn to camp to be with their friends, swim in the lake, plan late-night raids, and all sorts of other structured mayhem. But in other ways, Jewish summer camp has changed significantly. Some camps now have shorter one- or two-week sessions for younger kids instead of the traditional four-weeks and to compete with camps that specialize in sports or theater or art and so on, some Jewish camps now offer similar types of specialized tracks. Another big change is that Jewish summer camping has become the subject of academic study. There have been dozens of books and studies on Jewish camping, and this body of research has found that, in general, there's an even greater focus on Jewish education now compared to the 1950s.
3: And really, a lot of these nonprofit Jewish camps are really succeeding at informal Jewish education or immersive Jewish education.
0: This is Nicole Samuel, an associate research scientist at the Maurice and Marilyn Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies at Brandeis University. Samuel and her colleagues have done some of the most important research on Jewish summer camps in the last 15 years, including a 2008 study looking at how the Jewish camp experience has changed over time. And she says that Jewish camps today are seen as educational institutions in a way that wasn't the case in earlier decades.
3: Camp is where you went to get away, even if you weren't fleeing your tenement, you know, for four weeks. Camp is just what you did. So what your parents did and what it was good for you and you could you know be athletic and see new friends and or make new friends but i think camps really truly have an educational mandate now that they didn't before
0: The renewed focus on education has changed the way that Jewish camp educators approach planning. During the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, a typical Jewish camp might have a block of Jewish educational content sandwiched between archery and swimming. But more recently, camp directors have tried to integrate Jewish content more fully into camp activities.
3: So instead of going from swimming to archery to the Jewish block, you might go from swimming to archery and you talk about the King David, right? I mean, you can't use a slingshot at camp or something like that. But the idea is that you would take different activities and infuse Judaism or Jewish learning into that.
0: Same goes for rock climbing.
3: A lot of the camps I've visited in the past 12 years have their climbing walls with a map of the state of Israel on it, right? So small kids are told, put your hand on Jerusalem or reach for Tel Aviv, right? Or climb to Mount Hermon. So that's one way that camps view integrating Jewish education. And we saw a lot of that in 2008.
0: Samuel and other researchers have found that Jewish camps today also focus more on counselors playing a key role in fostering Jewish identity in their campers. In 2000, it wasn't unusual for many Jewish camps to have at least some non-Jewish counselors. Because camps weren't necessarily thinking about the educational value of the camper-counselor relationship. But that changed.
3: By the time we went back to camp in 2008, most Jewish camps had, at least for bunk staff, had universally Jewish staff. Because they found that bunk counselors are huge role models for the kids. And there's potential to do a lot of Jewish education in a very informal manner in the bunks.
0: Another big change has to do with how Jewish camps approach Israel and Zionism. As Fox mentioned earlier, during the 60s and into the 70s, Israel became a focus for many Jewish camps. Zionism and the pioneering spirit it embodied were seen as a way to make campers feel proud to be Jewish. But as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has become more controversial and as Israel has come under more scrutiny for its treatment of Palestinians, some Jewish camps are grappling with how to talk to campers about Israel.
3: So one was a camp where the counselors who were responsible for all education and all Israel education were debating essentially how to talk about the occupation, right? Because in the context of teaching Israel history and also at what point do we sanitize this? for the kids. And at what point will the camp get phone calls (laughs) telling us that their kids don't want to learn this or that they don't want, really, that they don't want their kids to learn that.
0: In 2014, during the Israeli war against Hamas militants in Gaza, Samuel visited a camp that had invited a group of visiting Israeli scouts to put on a show of their scouting techniques. In past years, the performance would have gone on without any mention of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But this time, some of the Israeli scouts did talk about the war in Gaza and about how hard it was to be away from home. And after the show, one of the camp's Israeli shlichim, or emissaries from Israel, talked about his own concerns. And said, like,
3: you know, this has been a really hard time. You know, my family has been spending every night in a bomb shelter. My unit has been deployed without me. And the camp let it happen. And we you know whether it landed with the kids, I don't know, right? Because, you know, how does that sound to a nine year old? But it certainly landed with the staff.
0: How to talk to campers about Israel has become a pressing issue, especially for Zionist camp organizations like Habonim Dror and Hashemer Hatzair that traditionally have encouraged campers to immigrate to Israel and generally and often uncritically supported the Zionist cause.
3: I think the Zionist camps have a lot of thinking and soul-searching to do about what it means to be a Zionist camp in America in the 21st century. Sometimes it's the Zionist camps that are, are more accepting of criticism of Israel. And so what does it mean that you have a movement that once, you know, encouraged Aliyah as, you know, part of like your pinnacle of your camp and your movement experience?
0: As Fox points out, campers and counselors today have much more access to information about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so camps have to be strategic about how they update their often outdated programming on Israel.
2: How do you present Israel in a way that works for kids in the 21st century who can Google anything and and get different perspectives? So that'll be very interesting to watch and to see kind of how If Not Now pushes American Jewish summer camping, if they will be a success or not. But something is shifting generationally, and Jewish summer camps understand that they have to respond to that, and how they respond will be fascinating.
0: The most immediate challenge facing Jewish summer camps today, of course, is that the COVID-19 pandemic has shut them down this summer. It's a huge bummer for kids who look forward to camp, and let's be honest, for parents who look forward to getting a break from their kids. But the fort's closure also puts at least some camps on very shaky financial ground.
3: I think if some camps were on the brink before this summer, then I think there's going to be a lot to recover from. I think Camps that have a business model where they can host conferences or retreats, as soon as they can get that back, they'll be in better shape.
0: One reason to be hopeful, according to Samuel and other researchers, is that the demand for Jewish camps seems to be growing. According to the Foundation for Jewish Camps, the number of Jewish kids attending camp in the United States has increased in recent years, and so has the number of Jewish camps on offer. Surveys show that American Jewish parents think that, on the whole, camps do a good job of making their kids feel good about being Jewish. And more than ever, kids see camp as a place with a special kind of magic.
3: Part of this magic of camp is being away from your family, being with your friends, being in this very youthful bubble. I think there's going to be the desire to go back to camp in 2021. And I think the Jewish community is going to try to do everything that it can to make sure camp survives.
0: Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. Jen Richler is associate producer. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization and features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community.